Go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 1055, page 1055, 2 Timothy, chapter 2. If this is the first time that you've used the Bible, the larger numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are going to be the verse numbers. So we're going to be looking at the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, big number, starting from little number 14. We're going to read from there all the way down to verse 26. And says this, Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. God, we don't come here to listen to clever words or profound ideas, or eloquent speech. We've come here to hear from the word of truth. So God, open our minds. Help us to grasp the heights that are hidden in this treasure of your word. Open our eyes to see marvelous things. Open our ears Empower us by your Holy Spirit to be convicted this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. How do you define effectiveness? We think a lot as we go around into the new year about how to approach 2019 in the most effective way. You might have seen PJ push your best year ever. People gather their plans. They try to bunker down before encountering January, ready to storm the new year. Trying to be as effective as we can in whatever we do, whether that's our jobs or our family lives or even personal development. We want to be effective, don't we? And yet, people's understanding of what effectiveness looks like is different. Some think of effectiveness in terms of greatness, Overcoming great obstacles. The ones who overcome the greatest obstacles overcome the greatest challenges, and they achieve glory. They receive greatness. That's effectiveness. So people like Mike Tyson or Elon Musk or some people, especially on the Internet, the Donald. But while their achievements are laudable, these kind of great people also tend to be jerks. So others try to change their definition of effectiveness, and they change it into being well-liked. So the ones that have the greatest impact are the ones that are liked by everyone, that are friendly to everyone. So they'll define greatness with Mr. Rogers, welcoming you into the neighborhood. But while they tend to be accepted by everyone, they're not really known for challenging people, are they? While these people are kind, it may bring smiles. When conflict shows up, they seem to be oddly absent. So what are we supposed to pick? Are we supposed to be aggressive or agreeable? Are we supposed to be pushy? Are we supposed to be passive? Paul teaches us here in his letter to Timothy, to be both firm and gentle. To be both firm and gentle. So this is the main idea for this morning. Be an approved worker. Be an approved worker or an unashamed worker by doing two things. Firstly, Correctly handling the word, correctly handling the word, and secondly, rejecting foolish and ignorant disputes. Rejecting foolish and ignorant disputes. So we'll begin with point number one to correctly handle the word, to correctly Handle the word. Look with me at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Paul talks about these things. Earlier in this chapter, Paul encourages Timothy to be strong in Jesus, to share in the sufferings of Jesus. And to remember the resurrection. And so he calls them not to fight about words. Don't quibble 
over these particular words. Now, sounds contradictory, doesn't it? To remember these things, but also don't fight about it. What's going on here? Well, later in verse 15, he says to correctly handle the word of truth, doesn't he? So when he says don't fight about words, he's not talking about fighting over what the Bible says. He's not saying not to defend the truth. What he's saying is don't deal with the words of false teaching. Have nothing to do with that. The opponents of Paul and Timothy disagree with their teaching. And Paul is saying that what Paul and Timothy are teaching are valid. And these other words, these useless words, these shallow words are not worth your time. Don't listen to them. In fact, he even tells, uh, tells Timothy here to charge them before God. To go before his church and tell them before God himself not to listen to empty words. Not to listen to these words. This disagreement that's happening here between Paul and Timothy and his opponents isn't just this light disagreement. Isn't just kind of a quibble amongst friends as you continue to spend time together. No, this is a dispute over an important matter. Why? Because Paul himself says that fighting about these words, paying attention to this shallow, unnecessary, false truth, is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Right after encouraging Christians to endure in the midst of suffering, these words will spoil the heart will weaken the mind, cause your knees to tremble, and they will fall if they listen. So have nothing to do with it. Many Christians think that they're being more patient by giving space for discussion over important matters. So not every church will immediately compromise on biblical principles. Sometimes they'll veil it in the form of discussion. So we're not sure what the Bible says in terms of definitions of sexual immorality. So we're in the middle of discussing it. Let's talk about this some more. Or we're not exactly sure what the gospel says or whether or not the Bible is completely true. Let's just talk. Let's give it some space. Beware of wolves, because they try to slip in false teaching in the name of understanding, or patience, or gentleness in this sense. Why can't you just wait? Let's talk. Let's be agreeable. I mean, we want to have open minds, don't we? Christians don't have patience for that. Bethany Baptist Church don't have patience for that kind of false teaching. Instead, do what Paul exhorts Timothy to do in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Be diligent. 
enduring, steadfast, disciplined, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. Why? Because he correctly handles the word of truth. Timothy is to be laser-focused on presenting himself to God, not looking for the approval of man, not trying to please people, but trying to please God. You see, if God is glorious, then that means that you don't have to fear the accusations of false teachers, that you're just not being tolerant enough. See, what you fear controls you. Shame is a powerful tool, isn't it? And for good reason. There should be some things that you should be genuinely ashamed of. And it teaches you to behave a certain way. But the source of your shame will control what you're ashamed of. The source of your shame will control what you're ashamed of. If you're afraid and the source of your shame comes from personal expectations that you place on yourself, it might lead you to be ashamed of your grades or poor work performance or or hidden sins. If you are afraid of public opinion, It might lead you to be ashamed of abnormal activity, standing out from the crowd, or disappointing others. You see, what you value becomes a jury that determines your worth. And Paul exhorts Timothy to forego the court of public opinion or personal expectation and redirects his gaze to a heavenly court. God's opinion isn't just an opinion. It's a verdict. If you're not a Christian, I wonder what you fear. Whatever it is, it's your master. It controls you. You see, it's not just not having religion for the sake of this arbitrary idea of freedom. Whatever you fear in this life will have a tight grip on your soul. And that's why Christians believe the gospel. See, we we understand the bonds of that kind of bondage. See, when God created us, he made us in his image and called us to obey him. But instead of obeying him as our master, we decided to rebel against him. In the name of freedom, try to be our own master. But what we did wasn't declare our independence. Instead, we became slaves to something else. We became slaves to sin. But God, in his kindness, sent his son Jesus to die. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he broke the shackles of sin that bind us to death. See, Jesus is the only master who is good. The only master who genuinely desires your good, who will never reject you, who will give you life everlasting. So it's not a matter of choosing between freedom and a master. It's choosing between a master who will persecute you, who will hurt you, who will bind you, versus choosing a master who is kind to you and loves you and gives you life everlasting. So if you're not a Christian this morning, repent. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and experience life everlasting.
And what does this heavenly judge, this heavenly master expect from us? What does Paul exhort Timothy to do here? He calls us to correctly teach the word of truth, to correctly teach the Bible. See, in this case, faithfully handling the word of truth is more important than what others think of you, than being popular. Bethany Baptist Church, be a church characterized by correctly handling the word of truth. Wield your sword with care. And hold your pastors to that same standard as well. Don't evaluate them based on how gifted they are, or charismatic they are, or how funny they are. Evaluate them on how they handle the word of God. If they don't handle it well, fire them. Verse 16. Avoid irreverent and empty speech. Since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, because it produces the gangrene of godlessness. Sin spreads. If gangrene isn't stopped, it infects the whole body. The only prescription is to slice it off, isn't it? Before it gets into your bloodstream. Before it hits your whole body. So Paul calls out this gangrene by name. Hymenaeus and Philetus are the gangrene. So I have a list of names that I am about to read. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. The way you remove gangrene in a church is by church discipline or excommunication. Paul is telling Timothy, call these brothers out by name. Reject them. Hymenaeus, Philetus, you are in error. And you are a poison to the body of Christ. Boom, sword, slicing off the gangrene. Calls them out by name. He goes on in verse 18, elaborating on what Hymenaeus and Philetus have done. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. They're teaching that the resurrection already happened. You know, it happened in our hearts. Popular belief at the time was Gnosticism that taught that the spiritual realm was good and that the material world was bad. So spiritual things are good, but matter, physical things, tangible things, they're they're evil. So Jesus couldn't have rose from the dead bodily because that would have meant that he was still kind of bound down by things that they viewed as bad. So it doesn't work in Hymenaeus and Philetus' system of thought. To say, you know what, like Jesus rose from the dead, but he didn't, like, really rise from the dead. He kind of rose spiritually. As a a spirit, kind of rose out. See, truth matters. That, That belief that Jesus didn't rise bodily is wrong. It's false. We believe that nature's good, don't we? We believe that God created creation to be good, Which means that when Jesus rises bodily, physically, 
that means that we're also going to rise bodily and physically. And that this creation is going to be renewed. And we're not just going to float in heaven like this spiritual angel with things that move past us with a halo above our heads. We're going to have physical bodies. We're going to feel the breeze. We're going to enjoy God's creation. And Philetus and Hymenaeus are saying that that's not true. They're saying that that's false. This isn't just something to agree to disagree about. It's about the very nature of the gospel. Church discipline is a tool given by Jesus to the local church to protect its gospel witness. If Philetus and Hymenaeus are preaching a false gospel, cut them off. Get rid of them. Because the pus of death will spread through the rest of the body. That's also why we discipline unrepentant sin. When sin, according to Jonathan Lehman, he gives a helpful definition here. If sin is outward, serious, and unrepentant, if if sin is outward, serious, and unrepentant, even after personal rebukes, rebukes with other people, and before the whole church, it presents a false gospel. Outward, serious, unrepentant sin from a member of a local church that believes the gospel communicates to others around them that it's possible to love Jesus and sin at the same time. Don't believe it. It's a false gospel. And Jesus tells them to cut that off. And now Paul is telling Timothy to have nothing of Philetus and Hymenaeus' sins. A false teacher. Cut them off. Verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Lord knows those who are his. That quotes in bold because it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from number 16. So this is after kind of the whole movie of the Prince of Egypt. So the Israelites are gone from Egypt. And before they enter the promised land, because they chickened out, they're having 40 years in exile, wandering through the wilderness, waiting for one generation to pass before the next generation can enter into the promised land. And people are getting fed up with Moses' leadership. I mean, we're going nowhere. We're just waiting around. So after a while, a guy named Korah comes up, and he starts to think, you know, maybe Moses isn't supposed to lead us. Yeah, I think I could do a better job. So they decide to pull a mutiny, bring an army together against Moses. And Moses falls on his face before God, and then he tells Korah, The Lord knows those who are his. And tomorrow, God will decide for himself those who are his people. Do you know what happens the next day? The earth literally opens up and swallows Korah and his people. God made very clear those who were his. He knows those who are his. And Paul is taking that very idea here and saying, Yeah, Phileas and Hymenaeus. You think that you're preaching the true gospel? Let's see. Try us. 
The Lord knows those who are his. These people are ruining faith. Does that mean that God is failing? Does that mean that God messed up? No. Paul actually addresses this issue of false teaching from two perspectives. He tackles it from the air, from God's perspective. And he tackles it from the ground, from man's perspective. So here's the first perspective that he looks at, from God's perspective, from the air. So here in this verse, Paul says that he knows those who are his. This isn't a building with an open door that people can just kind of swing in and swing out from. God has a definite amount of people that he has chosen to be his. He knows his sheep. He knows who they are. He knows those who he has chosen. And that should be a source of confidence for us. We can trust God because he knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly those who are his. The second perspective, from man's perspective. Quote, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn from wickedness. Let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn from their wickedness. So we don't know those who are in the building and those who aren't. There's some kind of mark on our forehead. We could just look and say, oh, yeah, like God's thumb is on you. Like you're chosen. We don't know. So that means that our message doesn't change. We don't sit around passively waiting for everything to just kind of happen around us since God knows those who are his. No. Instead, we make a call. If you call on the Lord, you will turn away from your sin. Repent. In other words, there's no such thing as armchair Christianity. If you have faith, you will turn away from your wickedness. And these two perspectives, from the air and from the ground, work together in perfect harmony. They don't contradict each other. Rather, they're compatible. God knows those who are his. And everyone who calls on the Lord should turn from their sin. Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Now, why does Paul use the term large house here? What he's talking about is the church at large. So kind of expanding the gaze a little bit larger. Right? There are Christians outside of this local church, aren't there? In the world today that profess the name of Christ. And Paul is talking about kind of this collective group of Christians in the entire world, but not a particular local church, not a particular entity. He's not even talking about the universal church in terms of those who God has chosen that we're not sure about. He's just kind of talking about this veil or this label of Christianity at large. And he says that there are gold and silver vessels and and wood and clay vessels. So these gold and silver vessels, these, these valuable precious metal vessels, are true Christians. And wood and clay vessels are professing Christians that aren't really Christians. They, they bear the name. They say that they're Christians, but they're not really Christians. The gold and silver vessels will be used for honorable use, like gathering water. But the other vessels, the wood and clay vessels, are going to be used for dishonorable use, like removing trash or 
or excrement. That's some nasty stuff. See, just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you are one. Right? You could bear the label. You could even have the shape of a vessel and still be used to remove trash. He goes on with the illustration in verse 21. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, You'll be a special instrument, set apart, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Purify yourself from wood and clay toilets. What you ingest matters. You don't use your toilet to make dinner with soup. It's a bad idea. Can't use dirty things for clean work. Don't taint yourself with false teaching. Because when you do... You dirty yourself, and then God won't use you. Instead, drink from the pure water of life. See, it's okay to listen to people outside this church for teaching, right? But what you ingest matters. Some people will bear the name of Christ and will dish you excrement. So drink from pure water. Have discernment. A great place to start is the bookstall in the back. There are names there that we like. We're saying, yes, they are going to give you that kind of pure water, distilled, curated for your enjoyment. That's point number one. Correctly handle the word and avoid or reject irreverent, silly, empty speech. Point number two. Reject ignorant and foolish disputes. Reject foolish and ignorant disputes. Verse 22. Flee from youthful passions. and Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So Paul then shifts the gaze of Timothy from looking at Philetus and Hymenaeus, toilets of Christianity. He tells them, look at yourself. Pursue your own godliness. So flee from youthful passions. Flee from sin. Don't just walk away, but run. Pursue your own righteousness. But you don't just run away from youthful passions. You don't just kind of flee arbitrarily, running wherever you can. You run to something. Run to something. Instead, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love. And peace. Run to righteousness. See, Christianity doesn't just let you live arbitrarily in Christ. When Christ transforms you, you pursue righteousness. You fight sin. That's what you do. So Paul tells Timothy to do that. To live a righteous life. Verse 23. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know they breed quarrels. Reject foolish and ignorant disputes because they lead to quarrels. Some conflicts aren't worth your time. Not all fights are worth having. Right? If a dispute is foolish and ignorant, it breeds unnecessary fighting. Fighting. 
Paul spoke earlier in the chapter about sharing in the sufferings of Christ as a soldier. Now, if you were in the trenches of war with your musket as a fellow soldier next to you, and he gets angry at you for kicking mud on his boots, that's stupid. But equally stupid would be if you got so angry that you dropped your musket and began to wrestle with him. That's just as dumb. See, petty conflicts distract you from things that matter. Petty conflicts will distract you from things that matter. And where you place your attention actually places price tags on what you prioritize and how much things matter to you. And Paul is telling Timothy here not to have anything to do with it. Verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. So there's a barrage of bullets with stupid arguments that are being fired against Timothy, and the Lord's servant is supposed to slow motion dodge them. Not get caught up in that. Instead, he is to reject them, call them out, scream at them. No. Paul tells Timothy to be gentle to everyone, not just the people that he likes, not just the people that smile at him when he walks into the room, but he's supposed to be gentle to everyone. There's no discrimination to his kindness. He has to be able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. And there are some that require patience, aren't there? There are some people, and you know the Lord loves them, but it's awfully hard for you to. And Paul is instructing here that part of being able to teach isn't just being really good at arguing with people. It's not about winning an argument. It's about being winsome. It's about winning the person. But doesn't that seem like a really ineffective way to correct someone? I mean, why does Paul tell Timothy to do this? He explains in the rest of the verse here, verse 25. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of of truth. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. You see, you don't bring repentance to people. God does. God gives repentance. Which means that no matter how compelling you may think that your argument is, it won't cause repentance. It's not how it works. If I raise my voice, that doesn't bring repentance. If I make fun of you or pierce you, Hurt your feelings. It doesn't bring repentance. God brings repentance. See, the Holy Spirit connects knowledge and conviction. We don't. And this also means that we can't be cynical about people's potential for repentance. So some people might say, well, you know, if God's the one that brings repentance, then it's not my problem. If God wants to work with them, God will work with them. That's actually the opposite of what Paul is saying. We can't be cynical 
about people's potential for repentance. In fact, we don't give up. We're still able to teach, instructing. You're still talking to them, but with gentleness. Why? Well, think about your own times when you've repented from sin. We're pretty stubborn, aren't we? I mean, how hard were you? How hardened were you? Can you really take any credit for your own repentance? I mean, didn't God do the impossible in saving us? In giving the gospel to us? God loves to do things that we perceive to be impossible. And God hasn't given up on you. And perhaps he hasn't given up on them either. See, the degree of your patience and your gentleness when you interact with people that are your opponents is directly correlated with your trust in God's ability to transform hearts. If you believe that God will actually transform them, or God could if he willed it, that means that you're going to be far more patient with them, aren't you? You're going to be far more hopeful with them. You're going to be far more gentle. But if you think that God won't do it, that's when you start to get a tighter grip. You start to think that maybe you should take matters into your own hands. And that is a mistake. Trust God. Trust him. Verse 26. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. These people aren't just enemies. They're victims. They're not just enemies. They're victims. They've been deceived by Satan to do his will. That's sad. That's sad. Our hearts should break for them. These aren't maniacal comic book villains. They're trying to lay waste on all that is holy. They're trapped in their sins. They're trapped by Satan. And that means that you change your demeanor with them. You don't bludgeon a prisoner while you're trying to save them from prison. Or to use another example, when the Coast Guard tries to rescue someone from drowning, they don't scream at the person to calm down, do they? They don't start fighting with the person in the water. No. Instead, they try to calm them down. In a rescue operation, you can't just save the person. You have to calm them down in order to save them. If they're still thrashing in the water because they're afraid of a threat, you can't touch them. In fact, if you try to deal with them, you'll both drown. And also, you don't just grab their head and drown them in the water because it's more convenient if they were still. You have to be patient with them. See, approved workers are ones that are able to read and wield both tools. They're able to reject divisive people that are teaching false gospels and also teach opponents that have fallen into sin that may be more immature in the faith and teach them with gentleness, with gentleness. Learn to wield both. That means as a church, when there's other Christians that get on your nerves, which will happen, you don't snap at them. 
Instead, you try to deal with them with gentleness. That also means that if they try to lash out against you, you become a cushion. And you let them fall down gently. And you catch them. Why? Because perhaps God will grant them repentance. Perhaps God will. That's what approved workers do. They're able to think maturely. They're able to see beyond just the present conflict and the fire in front of their face. And they're able to see a divine perspective, aren't they? They're able to see what God is doing. They're able to wield both. They're able to be both firm and gentle. Mark Dever tells a story when he was revitalizing his church in Washington, D.C. There's a particular member that was having issues with the way that he was leading the church. So naturally, she caught the pastor back in the foyer and began to complain. Began to lash out against him. And Dever gently disagreed and turned around and began to walk. And on his way out, she shouted at him, You know, I give a lot of money to this church. What would you do? There's a lot of thoughts that go through your head when you hear something like that. He turned around. He looked at this sister and he said, Now, you wouldn't want a pastor who listens to talk like that, would you? What kind of pastor would I be if I listened to talk like that? Her expression began to soften. She said, you're right. See, pressure comes, and he absorbs, and he deals with his opponents with gentleness. That's how you change a church. You don't take a wrecking ball to it. Instead, you love people. You encourage them. You reject ignorant and foolish disputes. Not by proving that they're wrong, but by not playing their game. Bethany Baptist Church, be a church who's able to see both. Who's able to deal with the word of truth maturely who can handle it maturely, that could reject irreverent and silly and empty speech when people try to bring in false gospels, but also learn to deal tenderly with immature sheep. Do both. And by the grace of God, you'll be able to see the glory of God, the kindness of God displayed in each other's lives. Lord, thank you for your word and calling us to do both. Help us to have discernment and wisdom to know. Help us to know. Open our eyes. Help us to learn from your word how to discern between the two. And God, give us grace in moments of conflict to be able to react appropriately. And God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who, while rejecting false teachers also dealt with his sheep with a tender hand. We thank you for the grace that we have in his work. And help us now as we sing and as we interact with each other to be gracious. In Jesus' name, amen.